So we'll be reading from 1 Peter um, 1, verse 3 through to verse 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Thank you, Rebecca, very much for reading for us. And uh, one of the things we've been doing over these weekend is I've been setting you the challenge of working out the connection between the passage that we're now going to look at and the passage that I've asked to be read. Um, one of my quirks is that I quite like, when we're looking at these stories, not to have them read in advance because I think it sort of, sort of spoils the surprises. And these stories do have lots of surprises in them, as those of you who've been with us over the weekend may have noticed. Now, I think it'll be a great help to you, and it certainly will be a great help to me if you are able to see a Bible open at the book of 2 Kings, chapter 7. And if there needs to be a bit of sharing of Bibles and letting people lo look on, please, uh, please do that. Uh, if not, you uh, may find it helpful to follow, or even if you do have a Bible out in front of you, if you want to look at the general line of where we're going, it's on page 12 of the booklet that uh, I think you received as you arrived here this morning, th this evening. Friends, I want to invite us just to pray briefly again because we're turning to the Bible and whenever we do that, it's uh, a rather marvellous thing that God himself speaks to us. So he will do that as we look at the Bible and listen to its words uh, the big thing that we want to ask for is that we will hear. So let's do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us that we open now. 
and we pray that as we listen, as we think, as we grapple with what we hear, uh, we pray that you would speak to us and we pray that we would hear. We pray that you'd open our hearts to be receptive to what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been alluded to already uh, this evening, but one of the most wonderful experiences of the Christian life is hope. But it's also one of the most misunderstood experiences of the Christian life. A number of those people who make observations about our society and our culture, you know, the mood of the times and so on, there are a good number who've noticed that one of the marks of our time is a lack of hope. Young people in particular, it is said, are not particularly these days full of hope. And I'd want to suggest that's understandable, given the messages we are hearing about what the future holds. Now, whether it's the climate change story or whether it's some other story about it, we're not hearing many stories that are telling us that the future's fine. And so it is not surprising, really, that many, many people find that this experience of which I'm trying to speak here I is a strange experience. It's not my experience. Do you think that's right? Do you think that we're living in a time when the experience of hope, or if you like, hopefulness, is rare, is not what everybody finds out? I wonder if there would be many of us here tonight who would say that a significant part of our experience of life and our consciousness is our hope, or our hopefulness. How would you describe that experience? What am I talking about? Well, Wikipedia, that ultimate source of reliable knowledge, tells me this. Hope, listen to this, hope, says Wikipedia, is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. Now, it's Wikipedia. Listen to it again. Hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. Now, is that what we're talking about? I think that's fine as far as it goes. But what if, what if you cannot see any reason to expect positive outcomes, either in your life or in the world at large? What if all you can see as you look around you, as you look at your own life and the course it's taking, if you look at the world around you and you see that, what if all you can see is trouble? Is hope? possible then? Is there something more than an optimistic state of mind that is available to us? Now this morning we began to looking at a situation that is a bit like that uh, from a long long time ago described here in this book of two kings in chapters six and seven. The situation was something like this. Uh, it was in a city named Samaria which was suffering from a famine and at the same time was under siege 
by the combined forces of, a, of an enemy army, the Syrians. They were desperate times for the people in that city. I don't think that anyone in that city at that time had an optimistic state of mind based on an expectation of positive outcomes. It just wasn't so. Not the king, we met him this morning. Not the two women we met this morning. Until something happened. A man named Elisha, he was a prophet, he was a man of God, and he said, you can see it in chapter 7 verse 1 of 2 Kings, 7 verse 1, he said, hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord turned out to be a promise. And it was a promise that within 24 hours there'd be plenty of food in Samaria for everyone. And what we saw this morning was that that situation was a kind of picture, a, a, a vivid example of what I called this morning, how hope starts. The kind of hope that is Christian experience. How hope starts. God has given us his word. And his word turns out to be a promise. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is how the hope of which the Bible speaks is possible. It's not, it's not just optimism. It's not sort of just positive thinking. God has given his word that in the end, he will put everything right. Now that's a very big thing to say, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's what makes the Christian experience of hope, whatever the circumstances you might find yourself in, it's what makes the Christian experience of hope possible. Here, the promise, listen to God's word, believe him, he's going to do it. That's how hope starts. Well, now, tonight, I, I, I would want to invite you to return with me to Samaria and just see how this worked out. And I've called this uh, study tonight, How Hope Works. How does a promise really help when one's life or the world at large seem to be utterly hopeless? If you find yourself in a situation where you just think about the future, you say, I can't see how this is going to work out well. I can't see really, and there are many people who find themselves in this situation. You may not be in this situation, but for a moment be sympathetic with a person who is. Where you say, I cannot see how my life is going to work out well. Just can't see it. Or on a bigger scale, I can't see how the world is going to work out well. Things don't seem to be going well. The wheels seem to be falling off here, there and everywhere. I can't see how it will work out well. Um, some of you might be able to remember the captain in chapter 7, verse 2. We're not looking at this particularly. We, I, I set this for homework this morning. I don't know anyone who's found time to do any homework today. But he was a man who heard this. He heard the words of Elijah, and, and, and he couldn't see how hearing the word of the Lord could possibly make any difference to the suffering that he could see with his own eyes there in the situation in, in Samaria at that time. No food enemy army surrounding the city, this is not going to work out well. I can't see how this can possibly work out well. Well, let's see what happened. 
because it's quite extraordinary. And I've got a number of points there on your notes, and that way that we're going to work through the story under those headings. The, head the first heading is the surprise of hope. In chapter 7, verse 3, the scene shifts from Elisha's house inside the city, where we heard Elisha say, that, say what, what, what we referred to, and uh, we move from there to just outside the city gate, where we meet four new characters. I rather like them. Look at verse 3. Now, there were four men who were lepers. They were at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let's enter the city, well, the famine is in the city, and it will, we'll die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. So now come, let's go over to the enemy camp, to the camp of the Syrians or the Arameans, as some of our Bibles put it. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, oh, well, we'll just die. A happy, happy, happy little group of guys, these, uh, these four characters. Um, they're lepers. That means they, that they had a, a, a serious skin disease. Uh, not the same as leprosy today, but that doesn't really matter. But they, 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 they were not only suffering what everybody in the city was suffering, they were suffering from their leprosy as well. They had not heard that strange promise that Elijah had spoken back in verse 1. They hadn't heard that. But here we're listening in on their, their, their kind of, it's a kind of dark comedy to their banter, isn't there? Why are we sitting here at the city gate? We're going to die. If we go into the city, we'll die. There's no food there. If we don't go into the city, we'll die. There's no food here. How about we desert to the enemy? They'll probably kill us. Let's do that. It's, it's, it's that kind of dark banter. And you look at verse 5. So they arose at twilight or at dusk to go to the camp of the Syrians, the enemy army that was surrounding them. So the sun was setting, and off they went. The cover of darkness might delay the inevitable. They made their way, way slowly, fearfully, I'm imagining, towards the enemy camp. Verse 5 we then read, But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Now that word behold suggests their shock. There was no one there. How could that be? I mean, for, for, for some considerable time, it was the presence of these enemy forces around the city that had made the situation in Samaria utterly hopeless. There was no way of getting any food in. There was no... It, 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 it was, it, was, it was the enemy being there. Imagine their startled disbelief. These four guys come to the edge of the enemy military camp and there's no one there. Something had happened. Something that, th that they could not possibly have anticipated. Something that they certainly could not explain. Unless, perhaps, they had heard the word of the Lord. But they hadn't. I want to suggest, and I want you to see if you can follow, follow my sort of linking here. It's a little bit imaginative, but I, th I don't think it's entirely unrealistic to say what they, were what they were experiencing was strangely like the first Easter morning. You do you remember what happened then? The, 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 there were 
a, a group of people who came to the tomb in which Jesus' body had been placed after he was crucified. And they were expecting to find the body of Jesus. And they got to the tomb, and to their utter surprise, there was no one there. Something had happened that could not possibly have been anticipated, that they certainly could not explain, unless, of course, they'd been listening to the words of Jesus. But they hadn't. Now, I'm calling this the surprise of hope. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Secondly, the secret of hope. I want you to try and imagine the confusion in these, the minds of these four lads as the, they, they're at the edge of the camp and there's no, no one there. What's going on? The historian who's writing this account for us breaks into the narrative to let us know, the readers, something that none, none of the characters in the story could possibly know. Uh, this is, he, he tells us what had happened in verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. Okay? Uh, it, it, it was, of course, a miracle. You see what it says there? The Lord had made them hear this. There weren't any chariots and there weren't any horses. There wasn't a great army, but they heard that sound of th th those sounds. And the soldiers in the enemy camp all heard the clamor of an approaching mighty army, the pounding of horses' hooves and the, the clatter and the din of chariots, so that, verse 6, they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has managed somehow to hire against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of, the kings of Egypt to come against us. And so what did they do, verse 7? They fled away in the, in the twilight or in the dusk and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. So here they are, the whole army. What's that noise? It sounds like a mighty army, a really mighty army. It sounds as big as the Hittites and the Egyptians combined. The king of Israel must have somehow persuaded them to come and wipe us out. Let's get out of here. They panicked. And the terrified army, we're told, fled for their lives, leaving the camp as it was. That's what had happened. And again, I want to suggest it's a little bit like the empty tomb of Easter. There was no one there because of a mysterious unseen act of God. The witnesses didn't see and they would never know how precisely it had happened. But there was no one there. Now just by the way, if you're looking at a Bible, you can see in verse 7 the words in the dusk or in the twilight. Uh, that phrase is exactly the same as the phrase back in verse 5, at dusk or at twilight. So that at the very time when the lepers were getting up to make their way cautiously from the city gate down to the, down to the enemy camp in verse 5, at that very moment, at that very time, the army in that camp was springing to their feet to flee for their lives. Um, the last soldier was probably scrambling away just minutes before the lepers arrived and discovered that there was no one there. So, the surprise of hope, it's about a big surprise. Because the secret of hope is that God is involved. Three, the significance of hope. 
verses 6 and 7 were a kind of flashback. Verse 8 now picks up where verse 5 left off. Verse 8, And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, their first reaction to behold there was no one there was this, they went into a tent and ate and drank. Well, of course they did. As far as they knew, the enemy army could return at any minute. They were weak with thirst and hunger. And I can see them grabbing any food and drink that they can lay their hands on and gorging themselves. And this went on for some time. Still, there was no sign of the enemy soldiers coming back. With their hunger and thirst satisfied, and I don't think with much thought, they turned to making the most of this incredible situation. Look at verse 8 again. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. And at some point, this frantic activity of just grabbing stuff stopped. I think they perhaps collapsed, exhausted, there was still no sign of the enemy. And they looked at one another and they began to think about what had happened. They couldn't explain it. The facts were clear. The Syrians were nowhere to be seen. And the entire contents of the enemy camp were there for the taking, which is what they'd been doing. But with a moment's thought, these lads their consciences started to stir in a rather surprising way. Look at verse 9. Then they said to one another, what we're doing is not right. It's not right. This day is a day of good news. I think it's quite remarkable. The, the boys realised that grabbing stuff, that wasn't the right thing to do at this moment because... This is a day of good news. This is what we might call a gospel day, we might say. And like that Christian word gospel, the Hebrew word behind good news here means really, really important news. Something momentous has happened. This is no time for going around grabbing stuff for ourselves. What were we thinking? Now remember... These lads had not heard the promise that had been spoken by Elisha back in verse 1. Nor did they know that the empty camp was the result of a, an extraordinary act of God that's been described for us in verse 6. But they knew that what had happened was huge. There was no one there. And it must have been dawning on them that in some remarkable way, the city of Samaria had been delivered from its terrible troubles the consequences of there was no one there were massive well they concluded uh, you see verse 9 if we are silent and wait until the morning light punishment will overtake us somebody will take it out of us for, for being quiet about this now therefore come let's go and tell the king's household see what they, they, they realized that what had happened was of such significance it simply had to be made known. Forget the loot. We've got to go and tell the king and the people. And that's what they did. So verse 10, So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses and the donkeys and tied and the, and, and the tents as they were. 
And then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. They simply reported what they had seen. There was no one there. So we come to four. Too good to be true? Some hours had passed by this time, uh, since dusk, you remember, when the young men had left the city gate and gone down to the Syrian camp. The news they now brought back was so big that the king was woken up. I don't think you do that unless it's very important. Not if it's a king like this king anyway, but let's not go into that. He had to be told this, what do we call it, this gospel of salvation. And how do you think, you remember we, uh, those of you who were with us this morning, uh, this despondent king who was absolutely despairing about what, what had happened to his city, how would he respond to the tremendous news that now reached the palace? There's no one out there. Well, for him, it was too good to be true. Look at verse 12. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and get into the city. Now remember, this king, he had heard the promise of verse 1. But he couldn't bring himself to see what had now happened in the light of the promise. He had a better explanation, he thought. It was one of the king's subordinates who was bold enough to see that, look, this, 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 this news, this good news, this gospel is at least worth checking out. Verse 13, and one of his servants said, let, us, uh, let some men take five of the remaining horses and seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let, let's go and see. I suspect these, this servant... Um, knew about the promise. He said, let, let, let's check this out. Verse 14, so they took two horsemen and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. Verse 15, so they, they, they went after them as far as the Jordan and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers, messengers returned and told the king. There was no, there was no denying the fact the Syrians had gone. What the four young men had reported was true. Do you remember the day when a few women brought the news that the tomb was empty? Someone came up with a reasonable explanation then, a little like the king. That's too good to be true. Now, here's another account of what might have happened. But when the news was checked out, what the women had reported was discovered to be true. Well, finally, how hope works. The consequences of what had happened for the citizens of Samaria can hardly be overstated. The, the terrible troubles that began with the siege, they were over. Look at verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians so that a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. You have to remember the promise back in verse 1 to see exactly what's being said there, but it's just as Elisha had said back in chapter 7, verse 1. 
This is what the word of the Lord, friends, is like. What God promises happens. Always. Therefore, refusing to believe the word of the Lord, as the captain had done less than 24 hours earlier, back in chapter 7, verse 2, has consequences. And this, this story ends with a rather strangely long account that we're not going to have a look at now of what happened to that captain. You can read it for yourself. He despised <coughs> the word of the Lord, and that was serious. There were consequences. <coughs> Excuse me. But what a story. I wonder if you agree with me. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? It's history. It's something that happened. But again, as we've been thinking about over this weekend, the particular experience there in Israel in those terrible days, well, long, long, long time ago, and all the suffering, all that happened, the story that we're reading reflects in a shadowy way the truth about our troubled world. We asked this morning, what is the right, what is the sensible, what is the practical, what is the healthy response to the troubled world in which we find ourselves? And simply but profoundly it is this, hear the word of the Lord. As we look around us, as we think about our lives, we think about our world and we, 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 we see all sorts of reasons to despair, what if there is a promise? A promise from God. It'd be worth hearing, wouldn't it? There is a promise. There is a promise from God to be taken seriously. Now, of course, the promise now is not about reasonably priced food within 24 hours, but it's the promise of sins forgiven. No matter how bad they are. It's the promise of the end to all tears and pain and fears and regrets. That's God's promise. That a day is coming when he will put everything right forever that's the promise that comes to us in what we call the gospel of jesus christ the news of his resurrection from the dead there was no one there and it's the hope of the world hear it believe it the surprise of hope it's about a future that would not otherwise have been expected the secret of hope, it's this. God is involved in your life and in the world at large. The significance of hope, something momentous has happened. Too good to be true? No. Jesus rose from the dead to guarantee it. How does hope work? Tim Keller, who was a well-known pastor in New York City, one of the last things he said before he died recently to his loved ones was this. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, everything is going to be okay. 
Dear friends, that's how hope works. Do you know this hope? I'd like to say to you this evening, there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't. What do you need to do? You need to hear the word of the Lord. As we've been hearing tonight. And you need in your own heart to turn to God and say, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your promise that you've guaranteed by raising Jesus from the dead. I want to believe that promise. And I want to know the hope that it brings. How about we just have a moment of quiet now? And you might like to begin to do that in your own heart. Just for a moment, quiet please. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for the guarantee of your promise in the resurrection of Jesus. I want to pray now that each one of us, thinking about these things now, will learn what it means to believe your promise, to trust you, to find hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.